everybody, and welcome back to Opera Offstage. I'm Jesse, And I'm Michelle. And today we are back with another story episode. We are talking opera simps, Russian music history, priesthood, and kind of just a, a bit of musical history potpourri. But today we actually have a really special guest, uh, a friend of the pod and a friend of Michelle and I's, Alex Papandrea. You want to give a little introduction? Yeah, sure. Thanks for having me, first and foremost. It's, it's been a long wait. I've been anticipating this moment for a long time, and I'm very excited. <laughs> As Jesse said, my name is Alex Papandrea. I, too, was a graduate from Pepperdine University with Jesse and Michelle. I went on to get my master's degree at UCLA. And uh, right now, I'm in beautiful Peierbach, Austria, working with my wonderful teacher. And yeah. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. We really have been talking to Alex for months about getting him on some sort of episode. And I'm just so excited you're here. Oh, it's an absolute joy. I stumbled over your name because it's really hard not to just introduce you as Pops. Yeah. <laughs> but yes we're super excited so we are coming back with another story episode these types of episodes are some of our favorite and i know it's some of your guys's favorite so we're going to tell some wacky stories some funny stories some crazy stories and so just get ready for the ride okay let's so let's go ahead and jump into our first story alex has a story about la boheme for us yeah so uh, let's set the scene we're at the metropolitan opera we have tenor neil shikoff singing rodolfo i'm gonna leave out the other names for embarrassment reasons so we're at the <laughs> end of la boheme mimi's you know approaching her death it's very sad and as we all know you know everybody in the crew is kind of getting the room prepared uh, making her feel comfortable letting her you know kind of pass away peacefully so to speak and you know marcello the person playing marcello throws like this vase of sorts for rodolfo to catch and then place down like getting it out of the way so mimi could you know lay flat and instead of, of course, catching the vase, the, the vase hit poor Neil Shikoff square on the face. Oh, no. <laughs> Embarrassing to start, sure. But Neil Shikoff's lip completely ripped open. <gasps> and so there w- it wasn't just blood coming out of his mouth. I mean, it was, it was full-blown gushing, yeah? And then so this is when you start to have, like, some of the stereotypes, you know, happen. So first he looks to the mo- towards the Mosetta, and the Mosetta, you know, naturally passes out. So she's done. <laughs> He is in a, a state of adrenaline. He's not even recognizing, you know, what's going on here. And so he's going on with the show. He's gone up to Mimi. They're doing their final moments before she passes away, before he walks off, of course. And, you know, they're, they're doing some final little, you know, touches or whatever. And then all of a sudden, you know, coraggio in the, in the end. And so for whatever reason, I guess the Mimi never really, it never really clicked to her that there was blood gushing from this man's mouth. And so... As blood is kind of dripping from his mouth onto her, instead of, you know, freaking out, she's finding a way to get in a better position to get those final notes out, only focused on, you know, her stardom, her moment. Uh, Very funny. Very funny. The show must go on. The show must go on. (laughs) Horrifying. My teammate no longer has a lip. Yeah. She's sitting out there, like, living through a carry moment. It's unbelievable. dripping on her. It's truly unbelievable. But what makes this, like, hilarious is that, you know, the show ends and the bows happen. And, you know, Neil Shikoff, I suppose, like, according to the story, Neil Shikoff holds, you know, the hand of Mimi. And they're about to walk out for the bow. And she finally notices the blood just completely gushing out of his mouth, you know. So she faints. It was her turn. (laughs) 
So, so good for her for you know staying strong and not painting before you know and you know stopping things from going off the rails or whatnot. But so she thinks classic Mimi not going down until she gets out those high notes. Exactly. Obviously, he had to go to the hospital. And what's sort of like the incredible story about this is that he had maybe, according to the doctor, he had maybe an hour left because if he didn't show up an hour later. Or if he had shown up an hour later, he just would have it, too much blood loss and he would have died. So <laughs> just like, when I'm I say so it was sorry. out of his mouth, he w- it was literally, I, I guess, just going. It was just rushing down. Like, you know, when you get a bloody nose and it's really, really bad and it's just like, it, it, you just can't do anything. And I guess it was just going down through his lip. And, uh, yeah, so... Oh, yeah. it's like any kind of face cut or anything. Like, anybody who's ever seen a head wound or anything, all it all bleeds like crazy. It's like hands, too. Just because blood flow naturally is kind of high in these areas. I'm so sorry. I don't know how you sing through that, though. Why did well, he bow? Well, that's <laughs> wild about it, too, is that he still had, you know, a few lines. He had the key mimis at the end. So I'm just like... My jaw was dropping when I was hearing the story because if something had happened to me on stage like that, right? And I can't imagine his his singing, you know, would have he must have had a list because supposedly when they got off stage and they were talking about it and like saying get into the, you know, ambulance, get into the ambulance, he was talking with a list because his his lip was ripped open, right? Like lip how, split. So so it just shows yeah. you that you don't need your, you know, Keep your lips out of your singing. You're going to sound beautiful. It's going to be clear. Nobody's going to notice. I mean, like, I don't really know what to say. That's really the takeaway. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. My takeaway is don't wait. Nobody cares if you finish the last 10 minutes. Please don't sing with a split lip. Bleed all over your companions. I'm sorry. Do these people not know that there is something called a cover? Like, <laughs> yeah, nobody else could right. go on <laughs> as this man's like literally about to bleed out. There are a lot of injuries I can imagine singing through, um, but anything that had actually, like, physically cut the thing I used to sing with, not yeah. really. Yeah. Like, like if he had gotten a cut on his forehead and it bled a lot, I'd be like, yeah, okay, I understand just, like, holding it and, like, singing through it anyway. But, like, your, oh, yeah. your freaking lip. <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of operas where, like, you can understand the risk of a cut or something like that happening, you know, something that has any type of sword play, something along those lines. But, you know, for essentially a vase to just be thrown, like a very casual, like, whoop, and to just be unaware that maybe it's coming, or I'm not entirely sure what the error was, right? But it knocked him in the face, and and when yeah. it knocked him in the face, it wasn't just like a little, ooh, you know, it wasn't like a, well, I'm okay, <laughs> just a little bruise. I mean, the guy's lip ripped open, so God bless Neil Shikoff, uh, and yeah, I'm glad that he was able to get through it. I mean... What a legendary story. To be honest, I'm shocked his nose didn't also Truly. break or that his teeth didn't shatter. I can't even imagine how painful that would be. Because anytime yeah. you get a bop on the nose, even like a slight one, it's like, whoa, you're like totally thrown off. <gasps> Yikes. <laughs> I can imagine him not feeling the blood because there's just so much going on and you don't want to bring attention, especially at the yeah. end of the opera, right? Like you're right there. You got like 10 minutes left. And I can understand not wanting to bring attention to it, but like I got a good hoot when I heard that you know the Musetta literally passed out, like she little she was done, like it wasn't happening for her. <laughs> and so she's I can't imagine you know the scene like she's on the floor, Mimi's technically dead, he's got a lip spread, probably you know I just what a story. That's all I have to say. 
Wow, a version of Bohem where three out of the four main characters just pass away. <laughs> it's <not> just me, me. <laughs> In this Bohem, no one survives. No one survives. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, that's wild. All right, well, I will now have in all future contracts no vases allowed in any of my scenes. <laughs> um, so my story doesn't have to do anything with cut open lips, but you know, people act really funny when they're under stress or experience something traumatic and we all respond differently. But I have to say, I was doing a little bit of research about our fabulous boy list and I realized that one of his like trauma responses is basically this attitude that like I'm a become a priest and (laughs) I didn't know this maybe this is common knowledge but I had no idea that his like whole life he was just like dancing with this idea of becoming a priest because when I think about list like he is the last person that I expect that move yeah listomania you know had all these women chasing him it's hard to imagine him as a priest well, yeah, it's particularly funny to me because, like, when I think of composers that turn to God, it's not, like, the freaking e-boy king of Listomania. Like, it's not the guy who fathered, like, a gazillion legitimate children who, like, had so many crazy fans who wanted his hair that he bought a dog and shaved the dog to send the hair off to his fans. Or, like, the guy who literally seduces a princess. Like, I'm just... <laughs> You hear Hungarian Rhapsody and you're like, this is baby making music. That, yes. But <laughs> let me just give you three examples of when List is like, screw it all. I want to be a priest. So when List is 12, his family um, moves to Paris in 1823. And this basically stirs a long spur of like different tours and a lot of travel. So at 12, he's giving concerts in Germany. His Paris debut is a year later on March 7th in 1824, which, of course, was sensational. And other concerts very quickly follow. So he's visiting to London in June that year. He toured England the following year. He's freaking playing for George IV at Windsor Castle at 14, which I was talking with Jesse before. And I was like, I can't even imagine doing anything in public at 14. Like, goodbye. (laughs) And, like, think about, like... Mozart at the age of like what negative five he was already performing in front of everybody like he was you know unbelievable truly just a fetus at the piano literally but he was he was so little like I imagine like I can't imagine confidently putting like my eight-year-old in front of royalty <laughs> right like <laughs> right. But also 14 is like just an awkward age you know like you're still developing especially like for boys like they're just super awkward so being at Windsor Castle at 14 like really blows my mind but you know his one-act opera is being performed at Paris Opera in 1825 in 1826 he's touring France and Switzerland and England again so you can imagine like our poor boy is totally burnt out. He's suffering from nervous exhaustion. And List is like, he's the Justin Bieber of this time. Bieber fever. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so he pulls his favorite. Yeah. He pulls his favorite card and he's like, I'm done with this. I'm having a mental breakdown. I just need to freaking escape it all and become a priest. And this whole time, his father and mother are like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. So his father takes him away to take sea baths to improve his health which i don't really know what that means or why walk into the ocean thing but they're like we're just gonna freaking dump you off in the ocean and hopefully you'll get over this priest thing but you know 
if you're trying to kind of calm your child out of like a nervous breakdown, it's kind of unfortunate when you die of typhoid fever. So <laughs> his father dies, which is not funny, but it's just like so ironic thinking like I need to take my child away so that they can like mentally restore themselves. And then you just like die on the scene. Kind of not the best plan. So List is like, I want to become a priest. So fast forward a couple years, he falls in love with one of his pupils in 1828. And her father was like, nope, this is a bad idea. Like, you can't be with my daughter. It's not going to happen. And I don't know exactly what he becomes ill from, but like classic heartbreak and then suddenly falls ill. <laughs> so he's so <laughs> ill, actually, that he's considered so close to death that they actually published his obituary in Paris in a Paris newspaper. So they're like, boy's goner. And after he recovered, he underwent such a long period of depression and doubt about his career that he didn't touch a piano for more than a year. And he was like, I'm going to be a priest again. Wow. Like, I don't want to be a musician. I'm just going to be a priest. And his mom's like, Mm-mm, not going to happen. And he experienced a lot of like religious pessimism and he just hated the idea of living a life or, or having a career of being like a virtuoso which is so wild to me because that's literally what we know him for mm -hmm. but you know list comes out of his funk after he starts hanging and meeting up with people like the three men who changed his life you know berlioz paganini chopin and then fast forward again <laughs> you say those names and my brain just goes like eh, same time <laughs> right yeah it's wild. For eight years after his 50th birthday, List was pretty much primarily living in Rome, and he became obsessed with religious music. And at the time, you know, he basically seduced a princess of Poland, as one freaking does. And she is trying to get her husband to file for a divorce, and, like, they're going through this whole thing with the Pope and the church of, like, can we do this? Um, and then it turns out, uh, you know, the Pope's like, nah. And so... List is crushed, and then the princess's husband dies in 1864, but, like, they're not really talking about getting married anymore. And so in 1865, List took the four minor orders of the Roman Catholic Church, basically to become a priest, but he never officially became a priest. And what really blew my mind, and maybe, Alex, you can confirm this mm -hmm. <laughs> um, or give some context, but when I was looking up what the four minor orders were, it involves training to be a porter, a lector, an acolyte, and an exorcist? Sure. So, I, mean, I can see it. <laughs> so did Franz Liszt, like, casually perform slash know how to perform an exorcism? Yeah, he must have been able to take the, you know, the demons out or something. I mean, Franz Liszt is the character, man. Like, hearing this, he just reminds me of Descrieux from Manon, right? Because, like, he falls in love with Manon, Manon leaves, and he's like, all right, time to be a priest, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's kind of wild. He had a rough, he had a rough time, though, you know? Franz Liszt and Richard Wagner were pretty much about the same age. Maybe Wagner was two years younger or something like that. And so the whole meme is that, you know, Franz Liszt and Wagner were sort of rivals. You know, Liszt was this showman. Wagner was Wagner. No explanation there. But, you know, obviously Wagner ends up marrying Liszt's daughter. Yeah. So, I mean, that's... <laughs> Could you imagine, like, being best friends with someone or being rivals with someone your whole life and then that person marries your kid? Like, ugh, poor guy. <laughs> to the priesthood he goes. Well, it's... Re like, just not the, I feel like, 
I would expect him to turn into something else other than being a priest. But then when I read what that like freaking Franz Liszt <laughs> just knows how to perform an exorcism, like that really topped it all off for me. Like that's just all I needed to know. It's unbelievable. All I hope to to learn in this world. Yeah. I mean, so our boy list. Our boy list. I guess that makes sense. It's like the other end of the spectrum. Like I don't I don't know too much about the religion of this time, but I imagine like asceticism that like secluding yourself from worldly things was probably still very popular during this period. And I imagine for a person who was constantly in the public eye that that might be a very appealing idea. Yeah. I mean, it it seems like a good trauma response. <laughs> Just leading <laughs> off into the distance. With yeah. God. Wow, I'm but ready for this class. For our boy list. Classical music and trauma <laughs> response. Well, you know, uh, it was, yeah. what's crazy about that, though, is that, you know, speaking of exorcism, uh, the next thing I want to talk about is that <laughs> is a classic cursed opera, you know? Like, I was talking to my teacher about this just recently, and we were talking about how La Forza del Destino, you know, it's this brilliant, brilliant opera that Verdi composed, and it's just magnificent. It's a powerful story. It actually is about, a, a, you know, a character who ends up actually, you know, converting and, and becoming like a, a monastery monk or something along those lines. Don't quote me on that part. But what's interesting about La Forza is that and this is what we were talking about, is that poor opera just couldn't avoid uh, causing troubles for people. So when it was first about to uh, debut, the performance was actually delayed nine months because the lead soprano uh, came down with a grave illness, so she, uh, she passed away. And so, you know, nine months later, it debuted in, in Russia. And then obviously, very famously, in uh, 1960, at, at the Met, Leonard Warren, the great baritone uh, he died on stage. Could you imagine just like giving it all? And, and the irony is that the arias, you know, starts with Maria Tremenda Cosa, right? So to die <laughs> is a, a terrible thing. And he just, you know, <laughs> see you later. I'm out of here. And he just, you know, he dies. And, you know, that history, that rich, I guess. Doesn't he rich... have a heart attack? Is that what it was? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I can't. <laughs> it's just, it's just nuts because, you know, obviously the opera wasn't performed really at the Met for, you know, a couple, maybe even a decade, I don't know, but many years. There's sort of like this big curse around performing that show. And you can ask anybody who sort of performed it. Everybody has their own relationship that, you know, if I do La Forza, it could be the end. You know, I guess Pavarotti, <laughs> he was super paranoid about it. He never even bothered. So he said it's a curse. You know, I'm not touching this. Yeah, well, I was going to say, Pavarotti was superstitious all the time. I'm not surprised he was like, I'm not touching the cursed opera. <laughs> right. Franco Corelli, who was also extremely superstitious, I, I know that, you know, for example, he used to put like little sponges around stages and he would, you know, use the sponges to get moisture and whatnot when he was singing. So, you know, he had, an, uh, there's also a really funny story when he was singing Ferter, a baritone. In, the, in, in Act 2, they have a duet, he and Albert. I guess he loved to like grab his thumb or something along those lines when he would go up for the high note in that duet. And during a rehearsal, just to screw with Corelli, he didn't, you know, keep the thumb out. So Corelli, you know, he looked a little panicked. He was like, what's going on? What's going on? And then obviously at the last second, he let it out, the, the thumb that is, and that allowed, you know, Corelli to, you know, <laughs> take care and, and do the, do his thing. But, you know, supposedly for every time Franco would perform La Forza, you know, he would do this like ritual you know, during the performances to avoid bad luck. Like, just, it, I could imagine, you know, during Act 2, just doing some sort of voodoo doll thing to be like, all right, I won't die tonight. This is good. And then going out and singing. So, crazy. 
make a little salt path where you have to go on stage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Pavarotti, he had like, he used to, was it like bent nails? He used to have something he used to make theaters do before he would come onto the stage. I learned a couple years ago, and I do not remember. But yeah, there are wildly superstitious opera singers throughout history, but I don't blame some of them for the, after the multiple deaths. But imagine being in the audience on that, when that guy dropped dead, and just being like, is this part of the show? And that, that's the irony, because he's talking about death, and then it's just like, see you later. But for real, you know? And like, Goodbye. <laughs> unbelievable. Um, truly going out with a bang. Yeah, I, I guess Forza then is like, Two singers, what the curse of the nine is to composers. <laughs> oh, right. Ooh, I like so. so. There we go. Anybody who has Forza coming up on their uh, 2022 uh, season, <laughs> watch what out. A, what a cursed choice after 2020. <laughs> you better uh, start thinking of what cleansing ritual you're going to use <laughs> before you step foot on stage. <laughs> right. Just uh, summon List back <laughs> to. Uh, cast out any yeah, emails before you exactly, go on. <laughs> he, he, exactly. Just keep a little like like picture of list with you at all times and you'll be great. Keep a little picture of list. <laughs> oh gosh. Well that's spooky. Perform lists exorcism over the house. Um <laughs> I'm gonna start including list in my Halloween decorations. I'm so sorry. It's like I don't know I don't know how I don't know how seriously people take exorcisms. I'm just gonna keep little little spooky pictures of list around my home during Halloween time. <laughs> maybe maybe during auditions, it's good to keep list just like in the suit jacket, just so like I know I'm blessed. Like he's gotten rid of all the bad mojo. <laughs> Sew him into the lining. You I know? love it. Sew him into the jacket lining. Yes. There we go. There we go. That would actually perfect. Be sick. <laughs> you open the suit and like the inside design is just Franzless's face going over and over and over. Like <laughs> so many of them. I love that. A custom suit. I like that energy, to be honest. So my story takes a a little bit of a different path. We talk a lot about simps on the podcast. Usually we're talking about Brahms. My boy. Because he is the classic. The classic. You know, obviously loved loved Schumann for years and years and years. But I give you Brahms and I raise you Janacek. Really? We have all been in the awkward dating stage. Where we have texted somebody and they haven't texted back and we have double texted. Which is always a mistake. Don't do it. They saw your text. (laughs) If they wanted to respond, they would have. This is now a dating advice podcast. (laughs) Just PSA. It's true. It's just, it's so true. Somebody told me that once and I was like, you're right. (laughs) But Janacek did this to the extreme by writing over 700 love letters to a woman 37 years his junior. Ooh. Luckily, she was of age. She was 25 at the time. So we, we've at least pa- bypassed the whole writing to teenagers thing. But he was 63 years old. And this is in the last 10, 11 years of his life. He will write over 700 letters to this woman. Oh, man. So and my favorite line from one of the articles I read about it is, it's remarkable considering that the young woman named Camilla expressed little feeling for Janacek or his music. Ooh. Which Double may be burn. the most savage line I've read in a music history article in quite a while. It happens. We we all do things for love. So starting in about 1903, Janacek uh, starts to travel to this Moravian spa town because all composers need to go dunk themselves in the sea sometimes. Um, <laughs> called, I'm going to butcher this, but Luca, Lu, Luha, nope, 
I'm going to skip it. He went to a Moravian spa town to take in the countryside and enjoy the healing spa waters. So at some point in the summer of 1917, which is notably after uh, Janacek and his wife get a an kind of sort of divorce. They are not legally divorced or divorced in the eyes of the church, but they are living separate lives in the same house <laughs> because he's already cheated and then she tried to kill herself and then they decided that they wouldn't go through all the social stigma of getting a real divorce. They would just separate. Mm-hmm. Okay. But he's Sounds still married. Great. Uh, and so <laughs> what a life. <laughs> truly. Truly, they were just like, divorce is too much trouble. Let's just live in this house and pretend the other person does not exist. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, by all accounts, was pretty probably pretty common for the time. So anyway, this is where he meets Camilla, and he immediately falls deeply in love with her because he's a romantic and he can't help it. Um, despite the fact that they are, like I said, they are both married. He's almost 40 years older, and by all accounts, she did not care. She did not care in the slightest. She was not interested. (laughs) She was happily married. She had two kids. It's also a little bit rude, because while he is living in this town, this is uh, in the midst of World War I. So actually, her husband is helping get him food supplies during this time while he's staying in this little Moravian town with her. Uh, Her husband works in the army, and he's bringing back food, and this man is just like, lusting after his wife oh man but i imagine once again he didn't really care because he was like my wife's faithful and she was (laughs) so camilla spent a lot of time alone though because her husband was in the military and so she and janacek did go and go on walks and talk to each other when he was in town Uh oh walks go on walks yeah walks how scandalous (laughs) you don't go on a walk with just anybody while your husband's away Go on a walk with his with his with her grandfather, probably right. Like, good God! <laughs> yeah, she's like she's like, look at this adorable old man. Uh, yes, of course I will walk with this lonely old man. Why not? <laughs> and then he's like, let me be your sugar daddy. <laughs> yeah, he's like, I'm in love with you, and she's like, that's so cute. I don't care. <laughs> and he's like, I'm a really famous composer, and she is like, I simply am unmoved. <laughs> um, so like, we see the first writing. Uh, one of the very first letters he writes to her, I'm going to read the line from it. You stand behind every note, you, li- you, living, forceful, loving, the fragrance of your body, the glow of your kisses, no really of mine. Those notes of mine kiss all of you. They call for you passionately. This man had no restraint. Um, to be clear, this is exactly three weeks after he had met her for the first time. Oh, man. <laughs> he wrote her, this oh. married woman whose husband was helping him out. This was the first letter. But, like, she is such a massive influence on him and his writing. So three of his operas contain a lead character based on her, the vixen in The Cunning Little Vixen, which is probably his most well-known opera, Amelia Marty in The Macropolis Affair, and Katya in Katya Kabanova. Um, So she is the lead player in three major operas of his. And not only that, he writes multiple works, uh, probably the most well-known of which is the String Quartet Number Three, which is, or sorry, String Quartet Number Two, which is subtitled or otherwise known as Intimate Letters. So that whole string quartet is based off of the massive, massive pile of letters this woman was receiving. I like seven hundred letters over the I course feel of a decade. Like I've been dated or something, or maybe I'm just freaking old. But like when you said that he wrote seven hundred letters, my immediate thought was like, that's a lot of postage. Like. <laughs> man spent right? a lot of money it's to send 700 letters yeah but that's the life of a sin baby 
Life of a simp. It's so true, though. Like, the funniest part about it is, like, I could understand 700 letters if you were having, like, a passionate love affair with this woman. And, like, you were deeply in love, but neither of you could leave your spouses, blah, blah, blah. But she was not interested. Like, she would sporadically send letters back. There's no accounting of how many letters she actually sent. But by all means, it was very, very infrequent to a man who was very (laughs) obviously sending her almost 70 letters a year. Like, this woman was probably receiving, like, five letters per month. That's whack. All while her husband is like doing his thing. Do you know if he died trying? Did he did he keep going until he died? Yeah, no. His last diary entry is about her. No way. Bro. He he, <laughs> man, he oh, man. died deeply in love with this woman. Uh but even I love this. There is a uh there's a musicologist who's broken down intimate letters because number like the third section is just a portrait of her in music. Uh and it says that so he takes this just simple little repeating line for the viola and it starts quickening and changing and it's described as it's actually the blood quickening at the thought of Camilla and it runs through the whole passage. And then there are these little repeated patterns and it starts to get more and more angsty and anguished with every little thing, which is him just being, you know, completely unrequited. <laughs> Poor guy. I, just, I think that's so funny because like, she like i said it is so funny to me that she is not only because it's one thing to not be interested in someone who is 40 years older than you but like she also does not care one single bit about his music by all means she does not acknowledge it she does not acknowledge that she is the main character of three operas or that she has this beautiful string quartet written about her like i understand but at the same time she's like i simply do not see it I have not heard it. Yeah, that's the real kicker for me. Uh, I was going to say, low-key, Camilla probably got in touch with the ex-wife and was like, I'm going to clown this guy so hard. And they're like high-fiving in the background. And the ex-wife <laughs> probably just like, yeah, you know, she's doing her life and she knows karma's a, you know, a bitch and, and like gotten him because now he's in love with this girl who has no care in the world for her you know, him and his well-being and his career and anything that defines who he is as a person. And, you know, he's, he, he's you know, he cheated and now he doesn't have someone who cares for him. Poor guy. It's sad, but also hilarious. <laughs> oh. Hold on. I need, to, I need to pull up, actually, like, his final little diary entry about her. Because, like, that's rough. It's, it's wild to me, though, that, like, this was till the end of his life he is, he is doing this. Where where is this? I know. It. Oh, his ex-wife was I, so I happy. To type it up. She was so happy. <laughs> his, uh, his ex-wife is probably living for that. Because <laughs> like before this, he had cheated on her with a soprano. Oh, of course, oh, a soprano. Of course, a classic move. It's always a soprano. It's always a soprano man. It's always a soprano man. <laughs> <laughs> we say as Alex is engaged to a soprano. <laughs> <laughs> congratulations <laughs> by the way <laughs> thank you very much thank you it's always a soprano though <laughs> yeah so it's always a soprano i have to keep that in mind for the rest of my life <laughs> yeah it's always we'll get you a, a plaque for your wedding it's always a soprano. <laughs> there you go but there is actually like a beautiful final quote of his that kind of explains why he kind of kept up this imagined romance that he was so invested in. And it's not particularly happy, but it is interesting. My life is sadder and more disordered, which is why I bind it with this art of mine. I glue it together and I recreate it in my imagination more tolerably for myself. Who knows? If fate had united us closely, whether I would have needed this art, 
or whether it would have ever made itself felt within me at all. Whether in your eyes, which look on so sincerely, there wouldn't have been the whole world for me. Hmm. Wow, that's actually hmm. a wild concept to put on another human being to be like, were we together, I wouldn't even need to make art because my life, my whole world would be so complete, which is beautiful and absolute simp behavior. Yeah. Great. A. Absolutely. Like <laughs> a plus plus. To be to yeah. be a man who like prolifically wrote music and then to be like, I wouldn't have even had to write music had we been together. That's how hot you are. <laughs> She, Pretty much. to a 25 year Does her family have any royalties to this music? Because I almost feel like she, that family <laughs> deserves some good payout, you know? Like, the Janacek name should also go to her because he said it. Without her, if they were been together, you wouldn't have gotten any of it. That's a good point. Yeah. See? I bet he bought her gifts. It only talks about their letters. Well, 700 letters is enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We don't need to get into gifts. <laughs> you already got me with the 700 Couldn't letters. Couldn't imagine writing seven, let alone 700. Yeah, okay, that has surpassed the 365 that we're dealing with in the notebook, okay? So, we're good. Don't need no gifts. That's whack. Yeah, there there must have been gifts and things. Crazy. But anyway, Crazy. that's Janacek, who I think, at this point, listen, it's hard to say because... Brahms was also present for many, many years of Clara Schumann's life, but also he has like a weird Madonna in the whore complex that I'll get into one day. It's fascinating. But I do think Janacek is giving him a run for his money on just absolute simp behavior. Well, with Brahms, it's really difficult because I think he had a wonderful relationship with Robert Schumann as well. And so it's just like, I, I totally agree. He's a great A simp as well. But I, I like kind of feel for him in a way. Like I feel like you know, he, he didn't really yeah. have anyone to love. There's something and, reciprocal yes. about Clara Schumann and Brahms' right. relationship. Like, they are close, intimate friends. And I also don't think necessarily, after, like I said, reading through Brahms' childhood, I'm not sure he ever really did want to be with Clara in that way because he has a really complex relationship with sex and sex workers because of his childhood. Mm. Which is why he slept with prostitutes through a lot of his life. Whereas Janacek is just a thousand percent horny and pining for a really yeah. hot young woman. Great A plus yeah. plus. Double A plus. <laughs> a plus. I'm favorite. so impressed, honestly. I mean, just like, way to go out, though. Like, way to be 60. What was he, 63, 64? Said. He's 63 yeah. at the start, so he would have been like 73, 74. Man, when so he for dies. 10 years. But just a whole decade of unrepentantly sending these letters to this married woman whose husband he clearly knows. Wow. That's the worst part. It's just like the complete. But ignoring. I love how chill the husband is about it. The husband is just like not does not care. He's not. Well, even I think threatened. the husband like can feel secure enough to know that his wife, whom he has kids with and loves, is not going to leave him for like a seventy year old man. Like I think who's do you think he just drops off the She letters? doesn't even enjoy. So. <laughs> I think we're okay. <laughs> R.I.P. Man, could you imagine being a composer and you write these you know incredible music for someone and they listen to it and they're just like. Yeah. Okay. Like I don't. I don't care. Like <laughs> you, you, you send her like to a concert of of the string quartet you've painstakingly written to her about your anguish and love, and she's like, "That's just not my type of music, but it's nice." Yeah. She she hits you with a thumbs up emoji, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds great. I'll listen to it later. <laughs> Left on red. She's like, truly, Camilla is the queen of left on red. <laughs> truly, left on red until he's dead. Oh, uh, man. Yeah, until he's dead. Good grief. 
Great story, Jesse. Love that. <clears throat> All right, Alex, take us home. You got anything else Russian we should know? Yes, yes. So, um, you know, I was very, when the pandemic started, I was in my last quarter at UCLA. And I wanted to learn something that I had pretty much no knowledge about. And I think that a lot of us have a very faint knowledge of, you know, the, the Russian opera repertoire. Well, it's, you know, there's the Tchaikovsky stuff. There's, you know, the Prokofiev stuff. Uh, maybe someone took a quote-unquote deep dive and, you know, sang uh, Aleko Rachmaninoff. But, you know, one of my favorite things is, you know, there'll be an opera that has Cyrillic writing in it and people just assume it's Russian, but it's actually, you know, Czech or something along those lines, and, you know, I get a good laugh out of that. So I I wanted to kind of dive in and see how, you know, opera kind of invaded Russia, and working with a Russian teacher, I had incredible uh, conversations about that. And what's sort of amazing is that when we think about the spread of music or classical music in general, we think about how particular composers somehow got up and went to different places, and they either found a residency. The person who comes to mind the most, obviously, is Handel. Handel was in Germany. He goes to England. You know, he sets, you know, a precedent for classical music over there, and it, and it blossoms over there because of it, or, or opera repertoire, should I say. So there's a guy by the name of Mikhail Glinka, who I'll touch on briefly before we hit the real superstar, in my opinion, but he sort of went on a three-year staycation in Italy, and he discovered the concept. He, he, he was just like, because at the, t- in the, at the time, Russia was simply just, you know, folk song and folk melodies and things of this nature. And so he went to Italy and he just all of a sudden discovers Belcanto and he's like, whoa, this is awesome. And he was sort of uh, in Russia to this point. There's no conservatory. There's no music study. There's, there's none of that. And so he essentially says, okay, I'm going to like start writing music like this, I suppose, maybe. And so he starts writing this music and, you know, it kind of gets passed on and you end up getting these five composers who kind of dominate the, I guess, the composition space pre, you know, conservatory times, I'll call it. Because when you have conservatory in Russia, that's when you get the Tchaikovsky and the Prokofiev and the Rachmaninoff and the Stravinsky and so on and so forth. But you have these five guys and that's like Cesar Kui, uh, Alexander Borodin, Balakirev, Mussorgsky, as we all know, and then the legend, my favorite, Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov. This guy's a mad lad. Oh. He's insane. What's amazing about all these characters, all five of these composers, and they were called the Mighty Five, all of them have either a militaristic background, they worked in the military, and composing was their side hustle, they were maybe born to an aristocratic family, or they were like, you know, scientists, I believe. Bordin, let me just quickly double check on that. But I believe Bordin was like yeah. big time scientist guy. Yeah. Yes. Went to medical school, top of his class. I think. Killed it. So what's amazing is that, you know, these guys kind of taught each other music. And the reason why I'm drawn to Rimsky Korsakov the most is because he was 18 at the time when this started. So it's, he's sort of the youngest of these five kind of DIY composers, you know, there's no people teaching them music or anything like that. They're just going at it on their own. And and he ends up becoming the teacher at the first conservatory of music at uh, in Russia. And so he ends up being kind of the teacher for these, you know, Tchaikovsky's and the Rachmaninoff's. And the irony is that, you know, he will even say that Tchaikovsky knew more music than he did because he, he didn't actually know it. He was kind of teaching, but he's like, yeah, so like, this is what I do. And yeah, sure, <laughs> go for it. You, you know what I mean? And just pre it. 
And but the the reason why I'm always so drawn to him is because he had a very complex relationship with the great poet uh, Lev Tolstoy, very famous, not Pushkin, of oh, course, yes. um, but Tolstoy. Um, and what's fascinating about Tolstoy, and this is sort of the story, so to speak, is that Tolstoy, War and Peace, wrote incredible literature. He was also sort of an amateur musician as well, and he loved, loved, loved orchestral music. He thought it was brilliant. But his relationship with opera was just terrible. He felt that text and music were not to be together. So therefore, singing could never work well with, with the music. He liked one opera. It was Don Giovanni, which kind of <laughs> feels like so obvious for a guy like him. But he uh, eventually saw a Wagner opera, and he was so inspired by how much he hated it <laughs> that he wrote a thing called What is Art? And in that, he said that, you know, the union of the two arts, which is singing and, you know, music, just never made sense to him. And, and it's just far too complex. It's just way too complex. It's not for simple people. Writing music is not, you know, that music is not for simple people. Well, Rimsky Korsakoff was not too happy with that. And so he went on a whole rampage, so to speak. And he said essentially, well, Screw you, simple people can't understand your works either. You know, and, and just like <laughs> went on a whole, you know, attack of him. There's nothing more Russian than just like roasting your contemporaries via S. Oh, like that's right? what they that do. That is the power move and, for sure. There's an entire chapter in one of Nietzsche's books about Wagner. And like they had a, they were friends and then they had a massive falling out. And I was laughing when I got to it because I was taking a philosophy class. And I was like, what are you doing in here? Right. <laughs> and like, Whiskey Korsakov, he's like the true homie. He finished writing the works of Mussorgsky when he passed away. He completed Alexander Borodin, his only claim to fame, which is his opera uh, Prince Igor. Well, Whiskey Korsakov actually completed that. And, you know, we see this a lot in, in, you know, our common music history. You know, you hear about Goethe, how he wasn't maybe too fond of Schubert. Or, you know, that uh, Puccini passed away before he finished Tuendo. And so someone else had to finish it, or Mozart with, ironically, with the, uh, the Requiem. But, you know, the sort of the hilarity of this is that this isn't as, like, at this juncture, you know, with Tolstoy and Korsakov. It's not like Korsakov was this, you know, profound, prolific composer who was only doing composition for his life, you know, or like the way, you know, Mozart or Puccini or any of those people were like he was a military man he made his money in the military and he just was like oh yeah I, I guess I'll do this music thing with my boys and you know <laughs> he winds up being you know the head professor of harmony and orchestration at the first conservatory because he was one of the only you know main composers who did that so they're like sure come on teach it great this is fantastic and and so me, I, me and the boys cracking open a cold one and changing music forever. Exactly. So, so I love I love the argument that he has with Tolstoy. I find it fascinating and hysterical because it's like a bar fight, you know? It's like, you know, <laughs> Tolstoy, yes, of course, had a lot more traction. Uh, literature is so prominent over there at that time, you know? Uh, but it's like, imagine, I don't know, uh, a person who has so much strength in position like you know Tolstoy was someone who was very much recognized for what he did and then you know you have this rando like uh Brinson Korsakoff <laughs> that they're attacking at and he's just like hey you like 
this is if you think we're writing complex what about you you're the one who's being complex and you know it, it sort of makes me laugh because obviously the final of all of this is that Prokofiev writes War and Peace he, he takes the Tolstoy book and he writes it and so Tolstoy must have been rolling in his grave and there we go that's that's the meme I really like the idea of Tolstoy being like opera trash hate it can't can't love it not a he good thing but he's like wrote, don giovanni though a man who wrote baller right <laughs> don giovanni perfection <laughs> but like war and peace is so incredibly dense like for anyone who likes music musical theater like uh pierre and the great comet of 1812 is based off of 90 pages of that book that entire musical is 90 pages and even then, they have to do an entire song about how complicated the naming structure in Russian is. Right. And, like, you know, arguably the greatest bass baritone or bass per se, Fyodor uh, Shalepin, which is like, you know, uh, um, there's a stake about a Shalepin stake. Is that what it is? Anyway, they ended up naming a, a, a stake or something like that after. But Shalepin, he's, you know, unbelievable, like a, a force of nature, unbelievable singer. And uh, could you imagine Tolstoy like listening to what is now regarded as one of the greatest space baritone voices or bass voices to ever existed? And he's just like, nah, this isn't it. Mm-mm. This, this is it. bad. <laughs> Wait, this is not it. Is this the one? Is this the one where like they started cooking the steak with onions yes, on it? Yes, that's exactly Dude. right. I only know this because of Food Wars. Oh, there you go. But yeah, so I think it was in the anime. I think it was in China. I forget where it was, but he was performing somewhere. Japan. Japan. There we go. And yeah, he's incredible. What's what's in store? He's sort of like the Caruso of these Russian composers. You know, Puccini had his Caruso. Well, Shalepin was the Boris Godunov. He was the you know superstar bass bass baritone uh, singer. I mean, what a brilliant voice, and he had no real training. I think he ended up training for about two three years before he hit it big time. But he was just singing folk song with a, and he was in a boys choir to Classic. start. And then, you know, obviously force of nature voice. They, you know, I, I, I'm assuming he didn't train. I believe he trained, uh, for two years and then they sent him on his merry way. That pisses me off so bad. <laughs> of and course he, he would be a bass and he trains for two years and then makes it. <laughs> yeah. And he's, and he's like, a, Classic and it's, bass he's, in, I mean, I encourage everybody listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed any of the stories, that's amazing, but please go listen to Fyodor Shalepin. I mean, the guy is jaw-droppingly good. And I mean, like it, like Michelle said, like this is very raw. This is a force of nature. This is out of the womb. This is, you know, this isn't what we have. You know, seven, eight years of university work and oh no, you have to do this. You have to do that. He like just came out. He's like, all right, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow that also just feels very Russian to me, just being like, I am simply built like this. <laughs> right. Oh, one of my, I, I was built this one way. One of my favorite things uh, my teacher says, he goes, this is not compliment. This is fact. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. This is not compliment. This is fact. Yeah, That's right. true. That is definitely like the Russian MO is like, I'm just built different. It's like how because... we talk about like Russian chess players. Yeah, but like even look at Horvstovsky. He's like, I have the voice of a god. Like I have immeasurable talent. He says that in interviews, and you're like, I'm it's so true. sorry. It's amazing because it is. It's just like this straightforward, like no nonsense. It's like I will not pretend. Uh, there's simply like there isn't that sense of I guess 
we talk in layers in English, and a lot of languages do that. But I don't necessarily think in Russian there is that idea of the polite. Yeah, and I I don't want to say politically correct because I think they're able to be politically correct, but just the way when it translates to English, when like for example, when when Dima would say like my voice is from God, like I I am blessed, and, like we would just say you know God bless me with this wonderful voice, and I'm so happy, and you know, but like that's what the intention is, but. Just the way it translates, it's just so blunt force, and people will be like, "Ew, he's yeah. so arrogant." But like, he's one of the most beloved singers ever, you know. And and rest his soul, you know, unbelievable. Yeah, I kept pulling up pictures of him when people were really excited about The Witcher because in a lot of operas, <laughs> he looks like The Witcher, and I was like, "Oh, sure, <laughs> absolutely." You think you like The Witcher, but you really just like like early two thousands. <laughs> right, old Dimitri. Um. <laughs> Yeah, good old Dimitri. It's swag. I I didn't know this about this. What what did you call them? The Mighty Five. Yeah, the Mighty Five. The I mean, Avengers. It's amazing of Russian composers. I can't wait for their Marvel MCU so, official so, appearance. So they essentially came together following Glinka, and I don't believe Glinka was uh, had passed on by the time these guys kind of came together. I believe he was probably a- around for a little bit, but yeah, these five composers they got together. And they just did their thing and they collaborated and they worked together. And, you know, we hear this, you know, kind of similarly with the French composers per se, that, you know, it's very linear. Like this person taught this person and then that person taught this person. And then it goes to Boulanger and then Boulanger teaches Bernstein and, you know, so on and so forth. But it's sort of amazing. Like you said, Michelle, it's like these guys were the Avengers. There was not a person teaching this person who taught this person. It's like all of them taught each other at the same time and worked together. And then Rimsky-Korsakov is sort of the character who survived it, right? He's the one who gets to talk to that next generation, that Tchaikovsky and so on and so forth. And so, you know, he ends up becoming the very famous teacher of Stravinsky and, and of Glazunov as well. And so Rimsky, yeah, it, again, if you guys haven't listened to many of these composers, Alexander Bordin's Prince Igor, brilliant opera, couldn't recommend enough. And then um, Rimsky-Korsakov's Snow Maiden, absolutely beautiful. Um, he has a lot of incredible arias for soprano and tenors and basses and everybody. I mean, the music is, is really beautiful. And you can hear how rooted it is in, you know, Beethoven and some other, you know, the Belcanto type of style as well. But yet it has this very unique flavor. And obviously that's because it's so inspired by, you know, where they're from and the folk music that came before it, right? That was ingrained in them prior to kind of having this classical music, this opera, uh, operatic genre, you know, come to where they're from. We love to see it. We love that Rimsky-Korsakov started off as the five-minute crafts of composition and then <laughs> really... <laughs> right. And then really established himself. So. That destroys me because <laughs> Five Minute Crafts is also clearly out of Russia. <laughs> so, right. And, you know, so I'm, not, really I'm not trying to attack cycle. these guys. I'm not trying to attack these guys. They're all, like, when no. you listen to Mussorgsky, you don't think he's a Five Minute Craft DIY composer, right? Like, they're brilliant people. And it makes it even more brilliant, in my opinion, that they didn't have the traditional, you know, education the same way, you know, like we talked about Mozart and Liszt prior, right? These guys were Wunderkinds. They all they did their whole life was music, and you know these guys are just like you know oh I work in medicine oh I'm in the military you you write music yeah man like I write music and and you know they did their thing I love it 
But that's, I mean, that's the interesting thing is, like, we often erase parts of stories that don't fit our larger narrative of what we think. We don't necessarily spend too much time in our music history classes talking about Russian composers or the fact that their upbringing was so markedly different from many of other composers. Right. Or, like, how late in the game Russia actually was to join opera. Like, we were talking about America and opera and how opera developed here and why that's led to so many problems with opera in America. And in a lot of ways, Russia has a similar idea of, like, it developed under this heavy idea of nationalism. Right. And, like, that's a huge effect. When we think in America, we think, you know, we have Los Angeles Opera. We have Houston Grand Opera. There's the one uh, opera house in the area. And what's incredible is, like, in its prime, per se, St. Petersburg, when, you know, in the days of Shalapin, there was, like, you know, 16 opera houses. There were, like, it, it was popping. It was off the hinges, man. You know, like, <laughs> Listmania hit Russia with opera. Like, I mean, crazy stuff. And so, um, they really took a loving to it. And, and I mean, and back to La Forza del Destino, I mean, like, it debuted in St. Petersburg. It happened in Russia because that had, there was so much excitement there and they just loved it. So, um, yeah. But that's kind of beautiful. Like, the history of music is people being drawn to wanting to make classical music, but also represent themselves in it. And what a beautiful thing. Absolutely. Yay. Wow. wow the, those are some crazy stories for you. Quick recap. If you uh, are in a scene and somebody throws a vase at you, dodge it. Uh <laughs> Uh, number two and number three, if you're ever in a production of La Forza del Destino, uh, keep a picture of List in your uh, breast pocket <laughs> <Yes>. for <laughs> safekeeping yes. um, to keep away the bad demons. And, um, you know, sometimes you go from uh, five minute crafts to a great teacher who helps your country write music. So you never know. It's never too late to start the game. Um, if you guys enjoy, don't double text. Don't double text either. And if you're seventy, don't double text or send seven hundred letters. If you're seventy, maybe stop hitting on that married twenty-five-year-old. Just a thought. <laughs> but commit to being a simp for the rest of your life. I promise you, it's worth it. Exactly. Uh, but this was so much fun, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, my pleasure. I'm so excited to have been here. It's like, a, you know, like the good old days. We're all hanging out. Uh, yeah, no, this is fantastic. And, you know, if you have me again, I would love to come back. And yeah, God bless. Very happy. Um, if you want to keep up with everything that's happening at Opera Offstage, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, YouTube, TikTok. You can join our Discord and chat with us. And you can find that um, in the link in bio on our Instagram, which is at Opera Offstage. And we will see you guys next week. Bye. Bye.